Well, it's our favorite time of the day again. Welcome to Counter Stories, a program by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I express are solely my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. Well, we're coming up here. Um, we are here at the one year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection that occurred at our nation's capital. And we wanted to be able to kind of reflect on that day and how it impacted each of us uh, and what has transpired since then and how we're feeling about that as we commemorate the one-year anniversary. And I know mainstream media has been focused on this for uh, the week coming up to this, and we, in fact, are recording it one day before the actual date so if anything should happen on January 6, 2022, it would happen after our recording. So with that in mind, speak to me, Counter Stories crew. What is what is coming up for you as you reflect on that day and how it impacted you uh, and what you have thought since then? Well, I'm wondering um, for you guys, like I, for me, it was one of those moments um, like when when 35 fell, right? It's like you remember where you were when you heard that. You, know? you mean you mean uh, when the 35W bridge yeah. collapsed? Okay. When the 35W bridge collapsed. Um, it's like it's one of those like you remember where you were, right? Like when 9-11 happened, you remember where you were when this happened. I knew immediately that it was going to change the country. And my husband was at work and I was texting him. And I know I'm, I'm sure he's he was very angry with me because he was on a shoot, right? Because he's also um, a videographer. So I'm texting him I'm like, they're going in the building. They're going in the building right now. Oh, my God, they're breaking. You know, so I'm texting him constantly and I was freaking out. And I was just like, it, it's finally happened. We've come to it. And it was scary because I was home alone with my dog. And at that moment, I really just wanted to be with, like, you know, somebody you love and and hug them. And just it was one of those moments, I think, you know, I you guys know me. I have a terrible memory. I couldn't tell you what I did two days ago. But that was one of those moments that will live in my mind. Just that feeling. So you were feeling afraid, it sounds like, and vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. See, in my, in my reaction was the opposite. It's, yeah, I, I would be remiss um, not to mention that um, January 5th, or, you know, the day that we're recording this, is actually uh, my mother's birthday. And so for me, it was, you know, the day after my mother's birthday last year. And because of COVID, you know, I think most of us were, still probably at home. And so when this all transpired, my kind of immediate reaction was uh, anger. Um, and it was anger for me, <laughs> I think 
folks kind of tend to know where I come from on <laughs> on counter stories. And for me, it was anger because I'm sitting here watching watching all these white folks, uh, Trump supporters, storm the Capitol to stop the election process, and and feeling angry knowing that if that group of individuals were people of color, from communities of color, Native American, mm-hmm. African American, or any other, any other than white, angry white folks, uh, they never would have even gotten that close to the Capitol without breaching. And so for me, it was anger. It, it, it was, it was, you know, it, it, we had been building up to that point. Um, the whole previous year, it, you know, it, it all came to a head on, on January 6th. So, so my reaction wasn't fear. It was anger. It was the fact that, that, uh, that at least somebody in this country can show their anger and not get, and not die behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. unfortunately we as folks of color don't have that luxury. We can't show that kind of anger. Uh, we would have been shot. We would have been arrested. Uh, we never would have been allowed to get that close. I think there was also a feeling from folks who were like, we got him. You know, we got Trump, like some progressive liberal folks who thought, you know, how could this go when he so obviously, you know, pushed them to this and they're all flying his flag and, you know, he keeps getting away with doing all these crimes and people were feeling like, you know, after all the investigations like this was going to be the the tipping point this was going to he was going to be held responsible for something for the first time and and you know it's like they felt hopeful but i was just like you know don't get your hopes up i was at home and i was actually leading a conversation with some local leaders and it was in the midst of that meeting when we were going over some 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 difficult data ourselves locally we started to see messages come in over the airwaves and we ended up uh ending that meeting um, it, it was fascinating because to look at what was happening, I wasn't sure what was going on at first. I was, I was, you know, thinking, okay, yeah, I knew this group was going to be there. I knew it was going to be ruckus. And I knew that folks were going to try to, you know, try to have a demonstration. Never in my wildest dreams that I think that folks were going to take it that far. And so while I was watching this unfold the day of, almost sudden all the, all the meetings around canceled and me and my wife and my and, and my kiddos, I got everybody together, and we basically stayed stayed glued to the screen to see this because we thought that that because um, at the time you know our kids were 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 socially distantly learning. We looked at that moment as one that our kids one needed to see, but it also was a fitting picture for what happens when people stop caring, stop reaching out, stop thinking of each other, and um, begin to think about self. And that's where my kids took it, which I thought was was fascinating on their part because um, they were seeing this as an assault on us, we, the people, regardless of background, right? Um, and they articulated that. They're like, this this subset of our country decided to, to stop working constructively and build. They articulated in that moment how this was different than protesters. I, this was a fascinating conversation I had with my son because he talked about the fact that you know, he didn't like that that there was destruction with some of the protests here on the ground after the killing of George Floyd. He understood it. He understood it in a historical context because of who his parents are. But he was able to articulate that that was for something that everybody could get around. 
It was multiracial and people from many different backgrounds. This didn't seem like that. This seemed, he called it sore losers. Talked about the fact that how, how do you get to the mindset to think that because you lost, that you can't go along with it. Like he was calling out the fact that even in times when people of color have gotten bad legislations, bad, bad raps, bad, you know, results in the political scene, um, you know, we didn't do this. And these folks did. And what is different about that? And that was the that was the interesting conversation that day. And how old was your son at that point, Anthony? Nine. Take note, folks. Take notes. A nine-year-old can figure it out. <laughs> you know, for me, it was a mixture of emotions. Uh, I share with Khalees sentiments of fear for our country and our democracy. And and there's some some data that we'll be discussing along those lines in, in just a little bit. But we we were receiving notices um, and bulletin texts, you know, by the news uh, media. And so I turned on the television, which, which would have been unusual for me. And I was in disbelief that there were thousands of people there on, ca- on the Capitol uh, steps with weapons. And they had gas masks on, they had body armor, they had bullet- bulletproof vests, and they were wearing tactical gear. I mean, they came prepared. They had mm-hmm. planned the violence, right? And right. the disconnect that I was seeing with my eyes and what I would constitute uh, what I would interpret to constitute terrorism behavior with the narrative on the television that was saying that these were protesters and they were demonstrating. And I'm looking at this like, no, this is much more right. serious than that. And and I was frustrated, quite honestly, by the various news commentaries because I was switching television say, channels thinking, OK, maybe another channel will will frame this correctly. But they all were afraid to use the word terrorist. Um, And if you look at the dictionary... They still are. They still are. They still are. Thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, folks still are... They reserve terrorists, the word terrorist, for people who are outside of the United States, for one, and who likely are black or brown, you know, skinned. And and they're not looking at terrorists as folks who are domestically living here or who are necessarily white. So that to me was very disturbing. And there was a dissonance in my mind thinking, how do you, how do you excuse this um, inaccuracy from a journalistic standpoint. And I'm not a journalism, you know, journalist uh, or journalism major. So I, I don't have that technical training. I know Khalid, you do, but I was, I was extremely disappointed by that. That was the first observation. And the second one was, I remember with clarity seeing the noose displayed on gallows outside of the U S Capitol and thinking, all the messages that that noose is intended to convey, right? In terms of intimidation and hate and all that. And, and granted, they were ch- chanting, hang Mike Pence, Mike Pence, you know, who at that point was the vice president. But it was still a very chilling 
image for me to see and reconcile that that would be something that someone would have the audacity to 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 erect on the Capitol grounds there. And it's my understanding that the gallows were not strong enough really to to hold a person, if you will. And the noose was in bright orange that someone had tied. But nonetheless, it was a very chilling image to me to, to look at and think about when we think about what that represents and what that has represented in our U.S. history um, with regard to uh, hanging black and brown bodies um, throughout the, the course of our history here. And that that to me all was really disturbing. And then the last part of it to me was the inconsistency of the messaging, if you will, with regard to their behavior. So they had the Blue Lives Matter flag, the thin blue line flag up, and they were waving it, but yet they were violent against the Capitol Police officers, right? right? They were they were um, beating officers with those flagpoles, the Blue Lives Matter flagpoles, and they were physically throwing objects at them and, um, you know, different kind of smoke uh, type of detonating devices. I, I don't know the names of all those. And I'm just sitting here thinking, how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile having that be your message symbolically with this flag that you're flying during your terroristic activity and at the same time exhorting violence against the peace officers? I It, it how, still is but, baffling but to moves. me. How, how, you know, I think what you're bringing up there has been, I think, one of the issues that, uh, this country is reconciling with for the past year and, and three or four years prior to that. Um, how do you think, how do you think that narrative has been framed? Well, <laughs> is that rhetorical? Cause I've got ideas. No, but go not ahead. rhetorical. No, I'm, go ahead. I mean, you know, that that's the, the very acts that you have been describing, you know, we all watched and, and it was all wrapped under um, you know, a term that we have talked about on other counter stories. It's been wrapped under this cloak of patriotism mm -hmm. that they were the only true patriots. And they've cloaked it, you know, for, for three, four years prior to that insurrection. They have been redefining what a patriot means and how, you know, their narrative in terms of what being a patriot is has been, uh, ha was being rewritten three or four years prior to this insurrection. And I know on a, on a previous counter stories, I talked about that patriotism and that patriotism doesn't include us. Mm -hmm. It didn't include us, uh, BIPOCs, people of color and, and American Indians. I am dumbfounded that a year later, uh, there's still this discussion, although people are are being brought to court. Um, I, I heard on a on a news channel 
yesterday that um, I think initially there were there were um, numbers thrown out that upwards of about 800 people had uh, actually got inside the uh, Capitol building, and now they've revised those numbers. The FBI have revised those numbers upwards to uh, 2,000 people breached the building. And so, so, you know, I just bring this up because a year later, we're still having this discussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it will be interesting to see how history falls on this and which narrative really comes out. Were they, were they insurrectionists or were they patriots? You know, when I think about your points there, Don, yes, we've spoken about it. And I think what I was focusing more so was the the uh, inconsistent behavior and messaging, right? So that they would be touting this Blue Lives Matter flag, but yet literally weaponizing it against peace officers, police officers. And that's the part that makes no sense to me in my mind is is that double talk right and that right, right. that that's on display for everybody to see um and that the police officers themselves were saying to the crowds that you know that you are hurting us right and and calling them out on that blue lives matter flag and and the retort was based on what i i've listened to different um interviews with Officer Harry Dunn and then Officer Eugene Goodman, which was the the response that these insurrectionists said was, look, we're doing this for you. And in fact, there were some law law enforcement officers from other jurisdictions who took part in that insurrection Mm -hmm. behavior. I mean, that's the part Mm -hmm. that makes it really hard for me to wrap my mind around. Honestly, like when it was happening, I really felt like this was some bit, <laughs> like it's not really happening, right? Because how could something at this scale be organized without the FBI knowing about it, right? I mean, this is, there were so many people there and it made me feel like unsafe, first of all, like you know, if something of this scale can happen at the U.S. Capitol with our senators in the building, like what else can happen that we are not, you know, that we don't know about? Secondly, honestly, I felt bad for the people who were there because they really thought that what they were doing was right for the country. They took leave from their jobs and flew to D.C. during a pandemic to do this. You know, they really believed that this was the right Thing. I know it's hard to imagine, but somewhere in their brain, it, it's it's in there. And I don't know how we can undo that. Like even now, a lot of the folks are going to jail and they don't care. And they're like, you know, what I did was right. They're not, you know, they're, they don't see the flaw in what they were trying to do. They don't see it as trying to. I, I think some of them have. I think some of them Some of them, them have. have, yeah. And some of them yeah. will, will not, not argue. Not all of them. But not some, all of them. Some have. True. And, you know, I don't disagree with you, Hilly, you know, but some have, um, I don't know, repented, I guess, you know, I mean, but what, you know, Lou's kind of laid out all kinds of things because, you know, she was correct in terms of media's reluctance to call it what it was while it was happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, which I found, 
absolutely surprising, but it reinforced what had been happening for the prior year because this wasn't the first time we saw angry white men with automatic rifles slung across their backs, carried openly because they did the same thing in the state of Michigan when they when they um, stormed the state capitol there right. and were allowed to come in. So we saw we saw this behavior mm-hmm. earlier in the year. And the, um, the hardest thing I think for those news stations is it's probably a legal issue. So like we were not able to say the murder of George Floyd until Chauvin was convicted. Folks who are deemed terrorists by a journalist who may not get charged later on for doing terroristic activities could come back and sue CNN, sue you know MSNBC, whatever. Um, for libelness. And we've seen, right, that that kid on the stairs who is taunting the indigenous drummer. I mean, he got like $2 million. I think there are still ways around that, you know, in terms of qualifying. Journalists could say um, alleged terroristic behavior or alleged this or that, you know, and, and have a pre-qualifier, I think, that helps frame that um, my frustration was with them calling them protesters. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just. You know, when we look at that, the entirety of that day and we, and we remember all the events leading up to that point, you know, I think it was sometime between after the, Results of the election in January sixth. If you remember, remember we would we would get these leaks. We would get concerns that were coming out from different staffers and and about Trump's behavior and and you know his during that entire time he was pushing this and this this narrative of of the election was stolen from him mm-hmm. and and yada da da. And the worst that that got, it actually got to the point. If you remember where where word was getting out that he was being advised that it would be within his presidential purview to call the military. I do remember thinking that, my God, um, there's no one else responding to what's happening other than the Capitol Police. Mm-hmm. When Black Lives Matter had their march in D.C., they had the National Guard, they had every uniformed that you can think of was there. And yet for this protest that everyone knew was going to happen, there was no other presence there to prevent it or to intercede. Because I was kind of half expecting Trump to pull out his that military threat, you know, that to me, that's what that day was, was a, a, kind of an accumulation of all the stuff that had been leading up to that. And I actually thought we were going to sit here and watch that all play out. Yeah. Well, we yeah. now, yeah, we now know that there were two pipe bombs uh, that were planted the day before, if I remember correctly. Yep. Uh, that evening in, before. Yeah, one in front of the Republican Committee headquarters and then one in front of the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Um, and it 
what the investigations since the January 6th insurrection occurred have shown is that they were planted there intentionally to divert any law enforcement um, from the Capitol grounds. So they were intended then to be a part of a distraction. So there would be, there would be less Capitol police officers physically able to respond. So that's one thing that comes to mind when you say that, um, Don. Mm-hmm. And the other one, quite honestly, is a, an assumption that we have seen play out over and over again that when black and brown folks congregate, there's an assumption that there will be violence, you know, in terms of protests versus an assumption that when white folks uh, congregate, that there's not going to be violence. I, I understand the perception, but I would love to see like like statistics on that. I mean, they were so angry about marching in the street when you didn't have a permit, but no one had weapons. No one was doing anything violent. It was just they didn't have a permit, Right. Uh, I mean, that happened when that car drove into the protesters in Minneapolis. They said they're not going to pursue the driver because those people didn't have the right to be there anyway. They had no permit. So, but then, you know, we don't show up with machine guns and pipe bombs. And and wearing tactical gear and wearing bulletproof vests and and, uh, body armor and gas masks. I mean, that's not how Black Lives Matter protesters show up. But I I think if we drill down into that, uh, Hilly and Luz, there were probably, you know, I don't know the number of different groups, but there were at least four, five, six different type of um, extremist groups that were sh- that showed up there that were c- totally organized. And so those were the, I think, pictures we were seeing on TV was this, the organized groups that did show up that were prepared. I think a large portion of that crowd were just Trump supporters who were there to support Trump and then just went with the flow. They don't really belong to these extremist groups, but as long as it was happening and they were there and they were there to support Trump, they went in. When we look back at, you know, the uh, protests we had here in the Twin Cities after the death of George Floyd, and we had riots, we had buildings burning, they you know, they pin that on Black Lives Matter. But when you look at it, there was no one in Black Lives Matter who was involved with any of that violence. It was outside agitators that were coming in. I, I remember the night that uh, that uh, they announced that, the state announced that, that they had reports that these outside groups were coming in. We saw those same groups on January 6th. And, you know, immediately I know that uh, Laura Ingram on Fox News was saying, we believe that Antifa is among these, you know, so immediately they were trying to use that. And now we we now know that she was texting the president at the time, asking him to please make a statement and how long it took him to make a statement. But she had to go on air and she twisted it. 
that's how her station, that's how the owner feels. And that's what she does. That's not journalism. Yeah. I mean, there are so many concerns here, right, that that are coming up. Um, I also want to humanize this, right, in terms of the officers, the stories that we've been hearing from the officers that were on duty that day. Um, and before I, I go down that path, I also want to just recognize that since January 6th of 2021, four Capitol Police officers have taken their lives following the attack. These are officers who were serving that day and who have died by suicide because of the amount of PTSD and trauma and and stress that they have endured since then. And that is just that's heart-wrenching to know that, that their families are no longer going to be with them because of, of the trauma that they have suffered and that they felt that the only way to relieve themselves of that trauma would be death by suicide. And then the interviews that with Officer Harry Dunn, who is so compelling. I mean, this mm-hmm. officer stands six foot seven, and he said he had never been called the N-word while wearing his uniform, but for that day. That was the very first time that he had been called the N-word, and he was called the N-word at least 15 times, and there were folks, um, insurrectionists, who were chanting to kill him. And then finally breaking down in the rotunda, in the rotunda, the capital rotunda, and then crying for 15 minutes and trying to just make sense of it, of something that, of course, does not make sense. And I think based on the interviews that I've heard with him lately, he's still dealing with that. And then the ultimate question that he asked, is this America? I had to take a pause for a second. Um, you know, I, I have to, um, I have to speak at a vigil here in Duluth. Um, that's people asking that same question, Luz, uh, from many different walks of life, nonpartisan, veterans, you know, grandparents, League of Women Voters, a whole lot of folks asking the same question. Like what, what, what it's, it was such an assault, not just on the institution. So if you're somebody who feels very strongly connected to our institutions, it was an assault on the psyche. It was assault on the psyche of folks who have been risking, you know, jail and in protest for, for policy change, right? Things that are working with our system. This, this was not that. This, this is not working with the system. This was not in support of positive change. It, 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 it was, it, it was an assault on the very character and notion of a democratic society for which so many people have fought for um, and yet walk away with this with some kind of level of personal righteousness. I just, I, all of that coming together is enough to overwhelm me not having the traumatic experience of, of being assaulted physically like they were. And so, you know, that's, that's the mindset that my, I've been in and a lot of folks here in this area have been in. We think about just the suffering that 
families of peace officers at the Capitol endured then, but continue to endure now. And then the psyche of Americans across the country right now, as we come up on the one year anniversary, which is after we record, um, we've recorded this segment. So how are you doing now um, with regard to what you're feeling coming up on that one year anniversary? Right now I'm feeling, um, I'm actually feeling a, a space of hopeful defiance. Um, and the reason I say that is because the mentality that is driving this and this driving this, this, this thing that's taking root in many different folks' lives. And many of us are going home to families having to figure out how to change their minds and they're digging themselves in even deeper around something that's not even real or true. Um, but right now I'm feeling defiantly hopeful. Like this is the moment I need to step up for myself because um, I can't think of another way to be and say, no, 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 this doesn't have to be who we are. And this is the time to define who we are in the positive. And I think of all the historical examples of, of folks getting together um, in times like this, because this mentality drives people to do things like this. I mean, this mentality drove well-meaning, quote unquote, good standing citizens to stand outside of the schoolhouse where Ruby Bridges was walking in and hold her in effigy and shout at this little girl. Like these, this is, this is, you know, this is the mentality that that drives people to try to restrict people's access to the polls rather than bring more folks in. All because I just, I don't like, I don't like that <laughs> folks try to, to assault the very public servants that they sent there in the first place. So, so for me, I'm in that hopeful defiant space because right now there needs to be another narrative because folks are hardening themselves into these, these political tribal identities. Um, and I mean that very specifically uh, because, because it's not rooted in a historical culture that's not rooted in even democracy because they're assaulting the various institutions of democracy. It's rooted in something else. And I need to have a, a narrative that there is a way to be outside of that something else. That's where, that's where I'm at. That's how I'm feeling. I feel pretty much the same in the sense that I don't necessarily have any faith that any widespread change is going to come from this investigation or that any of these big name, big player folks are going to be held accountable for their role. I think that we keep getting our hopes up with these investigations, and I don't think that we should anymore. I mean, if if rich, straight white men can get off, uh, you know, get out of jail and get away with doing things, they're going to, I mean, these guys are going to get away with it. So I'm, I'm having a little faith in our democracy right now. So I'm just, you know, trying to do what I can on, on, on a local level more, I think. I'm focusing more on like things more personal to me, like my nieces and nephews and how they're doing and, you know, trying to focus on them a little more, how they're doing in school and just like, you know, not, not having the faith, man. And I think I probably fall more along the lines of what Anthony was describing um, and, you know, I've touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's somewhat perplexed at the extremism that has taken place. There seems to be this, as Anthony, you know, named it, this tribalism that's happening. And I don't always understand. I mean, 
you know, I'm neither Democrat nor Republican, and I've said so <laughs> often on on counter stories that you know uh, neither group has ever fully had my best interest in mind. We've seemed to have reached a point where this nationalism um, coupled with uh, white supremacy for four years prior to this insurrection, it was allowed to permeate, come out into the open and be supported by the sitting president, I think creates created a situation that we've never seen in our lifetime. Now, my ancestors lived through that probably down south. And let me let me qualify that where it was open. Those of us who grew up here in the north had to deal with it where it was subtle. But there seems to be this extremism that has really kicked in. I know in one of our other podcasts, we talked about the browning of America. Um, and we talked about what that could possibly mean for this country. I think that we could, one could argue that a lot of the backlash we're seeing against migrants uh, migrants from uh, Central and South America and Mexico, and and where we find ourselves in the country now racially, um, could be one of, you know one of the variables in terms of the browning of America. I don't know. Um, I know that I was taken aback by what happened uh, the the past four years in in terms of uh, where we've gone. I I I had been hopeful that as a country we were moving along the lines of of reaching some kind of appreciation between all the different cultures all the different ethnicities that make up the United States of America in the past 4 or 5 years have really gone a long ways toward blowing that all apart um I, I would amend that, Don, and I would say I, I don't think it was just the last four or five years. I think this has been the seed was planted probably in the, the, the late 70s, early 80s. And I think the last four to five years was really when it was nourished at the highest levels of government. And that's why it was and, and it really built the extremism over the last four to five years. But I think it's been in the works for a while and it was going to happen eventually. And it was, it's know? been, I agree with, with Haley. I think it's been, I don't know if the same time frame, but I, I believe also that it's been in the making. When you look at historically what the cases and challenges have been to the elections with respect to voting rights and voter suppression, it's been clear that by the Republican Party, they have an agenda to suppress the voting rights um, of black and brown folks. And that that suppression, what's underneath that is, I would argue, is the browning of America, right? They can't stop that browning uh, with regard to the fact that the average, and, and there there's this is proven in terms of data, the age of the average white person is older than the average age of a Pacific Asian Islander or a Hispanic Latinx uh, individual. So that means that so you've got folks dying uh, in larger numbers in the white community, 
having fewer children in the white community and the complete opposite as it uh, pertains to the Latinx community and the Asian community. I don't know that breakdown demographically for the black community and the indigenous community. So that's why I'm not citing them. But I know that that historically speaking, then with those trends afoot, that folks, elected leaders and strategies on the conservative side have been fearful about what it would look like in terms of their electability as a party. And in fact, as we see redistricting conversations take place, folks trying to maneuver their way through these redistricting conversations are with the intent of creating districts that really benefit a particular party, which is, of course, known as gerrymandering. So, I mean, it's all related, right, is the point, is that it's part of a larger plan to make sure that the power stays with a certain demographic of our country. Well, that on that, on that voting space, this is where one of the areas in which um, our, you know, this pandemic has pushed us into a place where unprecedented ways and ease to vote. I mean, a democracy thrives the more people have their voices in the mix. And one of the assaults that this, in addition to the physical assault that we've observed, was this, was to your point, Luz, seemingly an assault on that very core principle. We had been, all of this movement, you know, from the debate between Susan B. Anthony and Ida B. Wells, right? Susan B. Anthony pushing for women's suffrage and the and right to vote. Susan, and Ida B. Wells rightly calling the, the women's, uh, women's rights movement on their leaving out of black and brown and indigenous voices, or black and brown voices in, in particular. Um, but those, those in, regardless of those internal struggles, the trajectory had been to as much as possible get as many voices into the mix as po- into the mix. And we seem to be on that trajectory. This group there, you know, overwhelming evidence, judges from many different political backgrounds, folks in the, their, their own camp acknowledged that every single review, um, you know, court case ruling came back. No, yes, this, this, this result is the result. And, the, and more people in America voted uh, Democratic in this presidential election or in, for, for president um, and folks lost. In a small subset of that group, a couple thousand folks decided to go and, and, and refute even their own, own, even folks in their own camp on their own side who did everything they could to try to, to try to count every vote and had to come back and say, well, that's the way it shook out. And so the ability and the privilege to, to, to think that I um, don't like the outcome, all the evidence tells me every, the exact opposite, but I'm going to double down on a falsehood just just because I didn't like the outcome, just because I feel like I'm no longer in control, quote unquote, control. This is a striking mentality for me that that is that is not only deeply problematic, but what comes after this is the thing that's troubling for me. If 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 this is now a new rallying cry for me to build identity around, we've been there before as folks of color. And those have resulted in some very dark and tragic days for us. This is the one looming thing in the back of my mind that that has me, has my hair on edge just as much as I find pride in the fact that in this in this area that I'm working in as a, as a pastor, um, 
I'm, this conversation about how, how, how troubling that was for our society is being held across political lines, across racial lines, right? There's, there's not a whole lot, there's not a, there's not a huge number of, of folks who are, who are looking at January 6th as, as anything other than an embarrassment. Um, how willing they are to go and denounce it and, and actively speak out against it is different politically. But there isn't that disagreement, at least in this space. But to know that there's a small subset somewhere who sees this as an attack on identity, people defend their identity violently, and that's a problem. I would also add, just, just my last and final point, a couple of thousand of these folks <laughs> went to the Capitol and destroyed and, 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 and did what they did. Black folks, we had a million people there in the Million Man March, and we even cleaned up after ourselves. So I'm just saying, if you want to <laughs> well, run the record. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you said that, Anthony, because when you referenced uh, Ruby Bridges earlier, not uh, once did anybody in the black community blow up a school as a result of that. Right. I mean, it is just is mind boggling and and how some some folks are willing to make these jumps in logic. Uh, but yet it's inconsistent with the evidence and the facts that that bear out. So my last question is with regard to the future. And, and Anthony, you keyed this up nicely here. I'm looking at a Harvard poll that surveyed um, 2,109 adults between the ages of 18 and 29, between October 26th through November 8th of this uh, 2021, with a question with regard to what they think about going forward, right? And, and their concerns about the U.S. And, it, and our democracy. And the results showed that 55 to 44% said that they're more fearful than hopeful about the future of America today as we speak. Uh, and that only one third now describe the U.S. as a healthy or even somewhat functioning democracy, with 52% saying it's a democracy in trouble or that it has failed altogether. So what does that mean to you? I mean, I... I have my own thoughts, but uh, with regard to the future of our democracy as a nation and being able to to be this leader of the free world and to be as as we've been uplifted, you know, within our own country and by external countries, the model for democracy. I mean, this is this is the challenge right now, right? I mean, if we were looking. And this behavior, the insurrection happening in another country, there would be some clear condemnations and some clear messaging that went with that, right? But what does this mean to you as you think about the future of our country as a democracy? Um, to be honest with you, I don't think we have enough time left in this current podcast to answer that question. I'm serious because Louis, you, 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 you bring up, you bring up a, a, a question that we can dissect so many different ways. I you use the term free world. We could, we could debate that you talk about democracy. We could debate what that is and, and what type of democracy what we have here and how it's displayed and we, we could tear that apart. I mean, there, there's so many different parts to this question that we can get in. And, um, I don't think 
to be quite honest, I, I would love to have this as a separate topic in a short version. I, I think what that poll was saying is that um, this younger subset of, of uh, Americans right now aren't feeling very comfortable with where we're at. Um, you know, since that survey wasn't geared toward me, baby boomer, my generation, um, you know, I think they, I would have probably answered that probably the same way right now. I'm just as unsure, uh, where our democracy is going. I mean, and t- uh, especially after the previous administration and, um, and so, it it leaves you uneasy. It it uh, right now the tensions in this country, um, and and you know, regardless of how you want to frame it, because you know, um, it there's just so much on that bone to chew. I don't think we have enough time to chew that bone. Well, um, you know, there's a couple of things that I <laughs> there's a couple of things that I reject. And this is not towards anybody, any person, right? This is just in terms of the notion. Um, I reject the notion that somehow this group is representative of as many people as it seems because of the way coverage happens in this echo chamber happens. Only because I run into a whole lot of folks across different sectors, even folks who, who absolutely, um, you know, in the, in the grand big spirit of, what these folks are feeling like are, you know, think along those lines and feel that way would never in their life think of, you know, many veterans in particular um, who I'm particularly working with right now who would never former police officers, firefighters, folks who work to guard and undergird these institutions would never in their life think, regardless of how much they disagree with policies or people or anything like that, even consider the actions of the folks on that night, mm. that day. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's something that I have to reject just just from the sheer nature of my of, of my own experience and then the data, you know, largely. Right. However, when you think about the terms hope and fear for this particular group, I'm always curious when those questions are asked, because you can approach that as a momentary thing, as in right now, snapshot. This is what my hopes look like. This is what my fears look like in, in, in relation to that question. That doesn't mean that that person can't articulate a hope, right? Uh, it doesn't mean a person can't articulate a fear when asked to do so. So if we were to ask and expand that question out to say, um, is it possible, right? Is, do you see a way through this forward where, where minds can shift? I wonder what the question would, or the answer would be to that question. Because that's the thing that, that I'm most wondering about. We gave a bad example on January 6th, the future generations, who we swear, you know, we are about democratic principles, except we allow a whole bunch of folks to storm the Capitol with far less resistance by law enforcement in that area than the protest for human rights. Uh, you know, so so <laughs> there's a whole lot of those questions that come to mind when I think about that. I would still wager that we could, in that same conversation, those same folks arrive at a, a hope <laughs> uh, that may not be indicative of a momentary reaction to the moment. Yeah, you guys already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> say it. You already know what I'm going to say. We still want to hear it. Our listeners want to hear it. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's just like, I, I really don't have any 
faith right now. It's hard, right? Because you keep getting your hopes up. Like, this is going to change it. This is going to change. Or people will realize. Or people will learn. Or, you know, and, and there's just, it seems like every time we think something's getting better, it gets worse. You know, the same thing with COVID. Every time we think it's getting better, it gets worse, right? And so it's it's hard to try to stay hopeful when you keep getting let down. And I feel like democracy in this country has been endangered for a long time. And what happened on January 6th is really, you know, the head of it all, right? And since then, I mean, really, it just seems like we, no one's really willing to come to a table, right? It's it's like everybody talks a big game about being bipartisan and everything, but in at the end of the day, when they come to the table, they're not coming authentically. And so I feel like if we can't be authentic, then we're just the the then democracy is just going to continue to fail in this country, and maybe it needs to burn in order to rise better. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, what what comes to mind is that that what we're seeing, unfortunately, in large numbers with elected leaders is that people are more loyal to their partisanship than they are to their constituents, that they are willing to to sacrifice and minimize the importance of accountability for the benefit of political gain. You had uh, visible leaders um, such as Mitch McConnell on the day of the insurrection calling out for accountability of the former president and the and all of his co-conspirators, for lack of a better word, but yet um, that has been walked back. And there is um, this normalization of it and, and downplaying of it, not because anything has improved, but for leaders like himself know that the issue of the January 6th insurrection will not play well for them politically in this midterm election, wanting to shift this narrative so that it works in their favor. And they are really good about walking lockstep with their messaging that allows them then to do that irrespective of the illogical stance that accompanies that. So that's what's troubling to me is this falsity folks then buy without questioning. And, And that's really concerning to me for a variety of reasons, but more than anything is just integrity and the fact that our country stands to lose as a result of that, that folks mm-hmm. are more interested in the partisanship of it than the actual benefits and values of our democracy. I'd encourage folks to watch the the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. <laughs> I, I, I describe it as both hilarious and terrifying because it seems like it could happen right now. It could happen any day. And the actions of the people in the movie are so realistic, and that's and it's sad. <laughs> so, so um, I, I, I see your pessimism, and I'll raise you. Uh, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll raise you a strategic point. 
Because I think, you know, looking through history at the turning points like this, when we we see we have something that so assaults us egregiously that that we as a nation have to make a choice. And unfortunately, folks find a way to get back to the original decisions they were going to make before. And, you know, the alarming precedent of restrictive voting laws that are going into effect in places when we have one of the freest, most welcoming elections we've ever had because of pandemic. It was easier to vote. You could you could mail in. The windows were a lot open. It seemed like we were doing what most other countries, well, not most other countries, but what a whole lot of other countries do. Um, and that is try to get as many voices to the table as possible so that there can be clear mandates. If I can keep it 50 plus one, then, um, you know, I can keep an instability that that at least allows me to, to still stay in the game when the numbers don't necessarily pan out to lose his earlier point around the browning of America. So, so the strategic point that comes up for me is who do you want to be? Do you want to be the folks who are responsible for this type of destruction, who look a whole lot like the mobs that stopped my grandparents from, 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 from voting at polls? Or do we want to look like, you know, what side of history do we want to be on? Some folks are saying that that doesn't play. I'm actually finding that it still does. And I think we're in for another huge shift just like the Democratic and Republican Party shifted um, shifted sides between the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, into, into two new distinct parties that were unrecognizable from their previous iterations. I think we might be headed for another shakeup like that. And to your point, Lee, I think, there, I think that struggle might be necessary for us to come to, to the question of who we really want to be. And I think that's, that question's happening now. Um, and I think the clear majority of folks in the country, if we can find a new way, a third way, you know, so to speak, could arrive at something even better than it was before. So that's, I got to hope on that. And I think a strategic way is to just to keep asking that question of who do you want to be? And I think we'll win the generational, um, the generational battle in that regard if we push and double down on that question. Well, I hope so. And that's a positive way to end our segment for today, uh, particularly with the understanding that uh, young people turned out in record numbers in 2020 in terms of the the election. And let's just hope that they will do so again in the midterm election um, and have more faith and hope in their hearts than was reflected in that poll. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've shared here are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks. Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Reverend Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. Mm-hmm.